Hello, Campus Cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Nicole Turner, full-time college administrator, part-time college professor, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five. In 2016, a man by the name of Charles Dean Bryant stalked and harassed one college student before his actions escalated and he ended up taking the life of a different student. This is the story of how Bryant's infatuation with his ex-girlfriend, Caitlin Mathis, turned into the brutal attack and murder of an innocent stranger, Jackie Vandergriff. This episode is titled, From Stalker to Murderer. So without further ado, let's get started. September 13, 2016, 24-year-old Jacqueline Ray Vandegriff, a nutrition major at Texas Woman's University, decided to get off social media on her phone and socialize in person at a bar in Denton, Texas. So Jacqueline, who more commonly went by Jackie, left the rental house she shared with other students and walked to a nearby bar, the Fry Street Public House. Before I continue, I want to take some time to explain the city of Denton a little more. You see, Denton is a larger city located in the northern part of the Dallas-Fort Worth metro, about a 40-minute drive, give or take, from DFW. It is home to two different colleges, the University of North Texas and Texas Woman's University, so as you can imagine, the city has a bustling nightlife with a main strip of bars located on Fry Street, which is just a few minutes walk away from the UNT campus. I'm particularly familiar with this area, and partial to it, because UNT is where I got my master's degree, which means I lived in Denton for about a year and a half back in 2007 and 2008. Anyway, Jackie arrived at the Fry Street Public House around 8 p.m., and once inside, she first approached the bartender and inquired about any job openings the establishment might have. As she sat down and began talking to the bartender, another bar patron joined them and Jackie soon found herself in a conversation with 30-year-old Charles Dean Bryant. Jackie was an incredibly social, fun-loving person. One of her best friends, another woman by the name of Jackie, Jackie Ton, told Jim Axelrod on 48 Hours that the two had been friends since high school and they often called themselves Jackie Squared. (laughs) Jackie Ton described Jackie Vandegriff as a good student. She was focused and trusting. Jackie said, quote, Jackie was a very social person. Whenever she went out, she would make friends with everybody. And it wasn't even flirty. It wasn't anything, you know? She was talking to the bartender, talking to other people, end quote. And the night of September 13th, 2016, was no different. Jackie had been talking to the bartender and to Bryant for about an hour. Around 8.45 p.m., Jackie posted to her Twitter account saying, quote, I'm glad I decided to get off Tinder and walk to a bar, end quote. Shortly after this, around 9 p.m., Jackie left the Fry Street Public House with both Bryant and the bartender she had been talking to. But as the bartender went his own way, Jackie and Bryant went to another bar down the street, Shots and Crafts, where they quickly struck up a conversation with a group of women. 
By about 9.45 p.m., though, it had started raining outside and people began heading their separate ways. Jackie can be seen on surveillance footage leaving the second bar with Bryant around this same time. Jackie's friend, Jackie Tan, said, quote, I feel like she felt comfortable enough with him that night because she had been hanging out with him for so long that she was like, hey, well, whatever. He's just going to drop me off. It's not that far, and I'll be good, end quote. Well, unfortunately, all was not good. Jackie and Bryant left the Fry Street area together in Bryant's car, and the two can be seen pulling into the parking lot of a nearby convenience store a little bit later. Police speculate that this was likely the last time Jackie was ever seen alive. The next morning, just before dawn on September 14, 2016, Jackie's lifeless body was found at the Acorn Woods Park near Grapevine Lake, about 20 miles south of Denton. Now, in order to tell you how and even kind of why this senseless murder happened, I need to take the story back a few months to the summer of 2016. In June of that year, Caitlin Mathis was 18 and had just graduated high school. Her plans were to work the rest of the summer in Grapevine, where she was from, before moving to Denton to attend college at UNT. On a June summer evening, Jackie was working as a server at a restaurant in Grapevine when a tall, handsome stranger walked into the establishment. Charles Bryant, who was 29 at the time and working as a bartender and personal trainer, quickly took a liking to Caitlin, and she reciprocated those feelings. She explained that he was buff, had lots of muscles and tattoos, and hello, she was majorly attracted to him. And, well, Caitlin dove headfirst into a relationship with Bryant, who was a solid 11 years older than her. As you can imagine, Caitlin's mom was not as gung-ho about this relationship, but she also knew that her daughter was growing up, about to go to college, and she wanted to let her daughter make her own decisions. But when Caitlin showed her mom, Karen, a picture of Bryant, Karen's motherly instincts and sixth sense kicked in. She told 48 Hours, quote, I got this feeling just deep inside to my bones, an evil feeling, and I said, he's going to hurt you. He's going to do something bad, end quote. Regardless, Caitlin and Bryant began spending a lot of time together, and one of their regular date spots was at the Acorn Woods Park by Grapevine Lake. It only took a few weeks, though, before Caitlin began to question the relationship on her own. She said, quote, I started to see these warning signs that he was manipulative. He was a bit of a narcissist. He thought very highly of himself. He would say things like, oh, you'll never find anyone better than me. It was toxic, and he was toxic, end quote. By mid-August, Caitlin was ready to break it off with Bryant, and she did just that. Afterwards, she thought it would be the last time she ever saw him, but the very next day, he showed up, unannounced and uninvited, to Caitlin's mom's house. Caitlin explained that somehow, through his manipulation tactics, he was able to convince her to get back with him. She said he went on and on about how he can do better and blah, blah, blah. But, very quickly, Caitlin realized she had made a mistake. She wanted to break up with him, this time for good, but she just needed to wait for the right time. About a week later, in late August of 2016, Caitlin moved to Denton to start her first semester at UNT. At this point, she told Bryant that it was over, officially. Caitlin moved into a dorm on campus, but she did not tell him where that dorm was or the name of the dorm. Still, Bryant found her but not before he was pulled over on campus for driving erratically. The UNT police officer thought he might be intoxicated by the way he was driving, but lo and behold, Bryant was not over the legal limit to drive. He was, however, 
charged with a few outstanding traffic tickets, but the officer let him go. Right after that, he went to Caitlin's new dorm. Caitlin explained that out of the blue, with no warning at all, Bryant knocked on the door of her dorm room. Naturally, Caitlin was confused and wondered how in the hell he was able to find her when she had not told him where she was living. But his explanation was simply, oh, your name was on the door. And yes, if you're thinking what I'm thinking, this definitely freaked Caitlin out. After he left that night, Caitlin immediately called the campus police and explained her situation. In response, the UNT Police Department issued a no trespass order, which banned him completely from the UNT campus. This didn't keep him away from Caitlin, though. Shortly after moving to Denton, Caitlin also started a new job at a Buffalo Wild Wings restaurant. On August 31st, 2016, Bryant came to the new restaurant Caitlin was working at. She said, quote, it was my first day there and he walked through the door and my heart just dropped to the bottom of my stomach. I was like, I just want you to leave, end quote. When he did finally go, her new co-workers told her that he had actually come by the day before looking for her too. At this point, Caitlin was worried and scared, and she asked the manager to keep Bryant out, you know, not allow him to come back. But unfortunately, the manager said it was out of his hands and there was nothing he could do. So Caitlin was forced to quit her new job because it just wasn't safe for her and she had to go back to the restaurant she was working at in Grapevine, which was a 30-minute drive away from campus. Her mom, Karen, even wanted her to stay at home for a while, you know, instead of on campus, but Caitlin truly thought she would be safe in the dorms, especially since he had been trespassed from UNT completely. But Caitlin was wrong. A week later, on September 6th, which would have been their three-month anniversary, Bryant showed up again to her dorm. This time, Caitlin didn't answer the door. She said, quote, he showed up to my dorm, knocked on my door, and at this point, I was shaking. I'm all alone. I actually hid in my sweet mate's closet, end quote. Caitlin went on to describe how she was talking so softly on the phone with UNT police that they had to ask her to speak up to hear her. She said, quote, I was just afraid that he was going to hear my voice. I did hear him say, Caitlin, I know you're in there. Just open up. I have something for you. And I'm like, God, what do you have for me? I don't want it, end quote. When the UNT police showed up, Bryant was already gone. But he did leave a gift for Caitlin, which consisted of a bouquet of flowers and a two-page letter declaring his love for her. About 10 minutes later, UNT police found him outside, still on campus, but now shirtless and in running shorts, and they arrested him on the spot for trespassing. Here's the thing, though. Bryant easily posted bond and was released within a few hours. But surely, since he literally broke the law and was now being held accountable for that, you'd think that this would be enough to scare him away. But nope, not even close. You see, Caitlin had blocked him on every social media platform possible, and she blocked him on her phone and email account as well. But Bryant was determined. He created a new email address and wrote to her after he posted bond, that same day. He emailed her saying, quote, here I am heartbroken and with a criminal record for bringing the girl I love flowers, end quote. When Caitlin shared this with UNT police captain Jeremy Polk, he became incredibly concerned. Polk said, quote, that's when it became really serious for me. If an actual physical arrest doesn't stop the behavior, then you're, you know, something is wrong, end quote. So Captain Polk helped Caitlin file an emergency protection order. 
and because Bryant continued to contact her after his arrest, officers went to his house the next day on September 7th and arrested him again. This time, they charged him with stalking. And just FYI, this was now Bryant's third arrest in only 14 days. But the asshole posted bond again, this time a $5,000 bond just two days later on September 9th, and he was released from jail. But now his actions would only escalate. By September 13th, so about four days later, Bryant was back in Denton. This was the day he went to that Fry Street bar and struck up a conversation with Jackie Vandegrift. Police speculate that he most likely went to the bar that day in hopes of running into Caitlin, but he met Jackie instead. When Jackie's body was discovered near Grapevine Lake the next day on September 14th, investigators were eventually able to positively identify her by using her fingerprints. This led them to Jackie's whereabouts leading up to her murder, and Grapevine police soon uncovered a lot of answers from looking at the surveillance cameras from those bars where she was hanging out the night before. They also quickly noted that the man she was seen with in the surveillance footage was an obvious person of interest. Clearly, at this point, though, they had no idea that it was Charles Dean Bryant on the surveillance camera, which means they also weren't aware of his most recent arrests and stalking charge. But let me tell you how they did figure out who he was. Remember that group of women I was talking about earlier and how Bryant and Jackie struck up a conversation with them in the Shots and Crafts bar? Well, investigators were able to track them down, some of those women, and luckily, Bryant had given one of the women his business card because he was a personal trainer. About as quickly as they learned exactly who this dude was, they also learned about the restraining order against him and his recent stalking charge. Captain John Luna with the Grapevine Police Department then called Captain Polk at UNT to cross-check information and see just who they were potentially dealing with. At the time of the call, Polk just happened to be running in a race. Polk said, quote, the first thing he told me was Charles Bryant was their main suspect in Jackie's murder. And I immediately just sat down on a park bench in the middle of the race. It floored me, end quote. In that moment, Captain Polk was also given all the information they had about Jackie's murder. And y'all, fair warning, the details are extremely gruesome and hard to hear. But they also tell you just how dangerous Charles Bryant was. The Denton Record Chronicle reported that it was actually firefighters who discovered Jackie. They had been called to put out a fire in the park near Grapevine Lake, and well, that fire was actually Jackie's body. Her killer literally put her into a blow-up kiddie pool, placed the pool and her body in the park, and then lit it on fire, but not before he dismembered parts of her body and cut out her heart. While the Grapevine police were collecting all the evidence they could possibly find against Bryant, Captain Polk knew he needed to reach out to Caitlin to make sure she was safe. After all, Bryant was still roaming free at this point, and this guy was truly a disturbed individual. There was no telling what else he might do. For example, immediately after he killed Jackie, he used Jackie's phone and Facebook account to send Caitlin a friend request. And he posted to Jackie's Twitter account on September 15th, the day after her murder, posing as Jackie herself. The post read, never knew I could feel like this. Also, just a few days after the murder, he sent Caitlin several emails, including a picture he snapped of a tree at Grapevine Lake. The caption on the picture read, quote, first kiss under this tree once upon a time, XXO. And although Caitlin isn't certain, she thinks he may have taken the photo the day Jackie was killed. Ugh, just truly creepy, psychotic stuff. 
But remember, Bryant still had that restraining order against him. So based on the fact that he violated the restraining order once again by trying to email Caitlin, Captain Polk from UNT thought they could at least use that violation to make another arrest and get him off the streets while they were continuing to collect evidence and work the murder case. So once again, on September 18, 2016, he was arrested for violating the restraining order, and while he was behind bars, investigators got to work. You see, because Jackie's body was so brutally mutilated, the medical examiner had a hard time making solid conclusions regarding her cause of death. I mean, clearly her manner of death was homicide, but they didn't know exactly how she was killed. They speculated that she may have been strangled with a large zip tie that just happened to conveniently be in Bryant's car. So here's how this investigation went down with the evidence they collected against him. First, they were able to determine that Bryant and Jackie were together, obviously, the night of the murder. According to the Denton Record Chronicle, Jackie's cell phone pinged towers heading south of Denton. The last ping was recorded at 1.30 a.m. on September 14th near Bryant's home in Hazlett, Texas, which is about 20 minutes west of where her body was found. One witness told police that they saw a white man standing over the fire and that he left in a light-colored SUV. Another witness said they had seen a blue kiddie pool in Bryant's backyard. The Denton Record Chronicle also reported that a search warrant for Bryant's home revealed that investigators found Jackie's purse in his house, along with a TWU satchel. Additionally, they found a zip tie with Jackie's hair on it, blood samples, and condoms. According to the Dallas Morning News, they also found a sheathed knife in his house, and one of Jackie's bones was found in his yard near a circle on the ground where a kiddie pool used to sit. So you know how you fill up a kiddie pool or a kiddie pool sitting in the grass for a long time, but then you take it off and it leaves that circled indention? Well, that's what they were talking about here. And when they searched Bryant's Mitsubishi Outlander, which is an SUV, they found a loaded semi-automatic pistol, a stun gun, and large zip ties. Now, while investigators were working the case and collecting all of this evidence, Texas Ranger Jim Holland was called in to interview Bryant. If you're not familiar with the Texas Rangers, they are an elite team of specially trained law enforcement officials representing a select division in the Texas State Police. And Ranger Holland, a senior member of this team, specializes in interviewing the most prolific killers and analyzing their thoughts and behaviors. Holland explained to Jim Axelrod on 48 Hours that his tactic was to talk to Bryant as a friend, a buddy, and to develop some rapport and trust between them. The whole time, however, Holland was analyzing his words and actions, trying to get him to confess to the murder. Holland said, quote, you know, as we're going through the interview, I'm watching him. I'm, I guess in a way, a human lie detector. I'm reading him and I'm throwing things at him in which I know the answer, and I'm looking for his responses, whether they're false or true, end quote. Although Bryant tried to distance himself from having any contact with Jackie at first, Ranger Holland was able to break him down. By the end of the intense six-hour interview, Bryant admitted that he must have done it, but that he just didn't remember. Um, okay, dude. Anyway, by the end of the interview, Bryant told Ranger Holland, quote, everything points to me. It's like I had to have done it, end quote. But not before Bryant came up with the scenario that Jackie died during, quote unquote, kinky sex gone wrong. 
He said Jackie asked him to randomly use a zip tie on her, but that somehow the zip tie became too tight and strangled her to death. But, he said, he did not tighten it, and neither did Jackie. So Holland was like, so it just tightened on its own? Regardless, Holland wasn't buying the kinky sex gone wrong story. Mostly because, even if that were to happen, why wouldn't you just call 911 and report the incident instead of mutilating and burning her body? Like, why go through all of that trouble to try to destroy evidence if it were a legitimate freak accident? It just, it did not make any sense. In his 48 Hours interview, Holland discussed the potential of Bryant having the mind of a sociopath or psychopath, and he explained the difference between the two. Some of you may have heard this before, but Holland said, quote, A psychopath would be someone who's basically born with a scar on their brain. Then a sociopathic mindset is something that society has brought on. Something happened to them that changed their psyche, end quote. At the end of the interview with Holland, Bryant was officially charged with Jackie's murder. This time, his bond was set much higher at $1 million. At a press conference announcing his arrest, Grapevine Police Sergeant Robert Eberling said, quote, He has certainly given us quite a few details, but we've also uncovered a lot of evidence from the search of his house, the tracking of the victim's cell phone that led us to the suspect's house, or in close proximity to the suspect's house, so we're gathering a lot of physical evidence, and he's given us, provided us, with information as well, end quote. By April of 2018, investigators had collected enough evidence against Bryant to take him to trial, in which additional details about the murder were presented. But there is one snag. Prosecutors knew they had a strong case against Bryant for Jackie's murder, but to generate a slam-dunk guilty verdict, they really wanted to give the jury more of a motive. That motive being Caitlin's testimony, where she could testify in court and tell the jury about how Bryant had repeatedly stalked her and violated the restraining order. After all, she was a victim of Bryant's too, and she very likely could have been the next one he killed. In other words, investigators strongly believe that it was his infatuation with Caitlin that led him to murder Jackie. Ranger Holland speculates that Bryant even thought Jackie was Caitlin when he first saw her. Holland explained this further and said, quote, It wouldn't surprise me if he actually mistook her at first, you know, saw her from behind and thought, man, you know, my ex is here. I think in his mind that whole night, I think that's what he pictured, end quote. Plus, let's not forget that he continued to try and contact Caitlin after he murdered Jackie. So in prosecutors' minds, it was all connected. His actions stemmed from his feelings toward Caitlin, and the jury needed to hear that. But unfortunately, the judge ruled against Caitlin being able to take the witness stand during the trial, taking into account that although Bryant had been charged with stalking and although he was arrested, he was never convicted of that crime which completely blows, but I guess the law is the law, right? Anyway, during the trial, Bryant's defense maintained his initial claim that it was a terrible accident resulting from kinky sex. According to the Dallas Morning News, they argued that Bryant panicked after Jackie died during consensual sex, and in his panic, he went to Walmart at 4 o'clock in the morning, which there's surveillance footage of, and he bought a shovel. They claimed that he attempted to bury Jackie in his backyard, but that the ground was too hard. So he decided to mutilate her body, place her in that plastic kiddie pool, take her body and the pool to the park near the lake, and then set it on fire. They said the only thing he was actually guilty of was tampering with evidence. 
They also suggested to the jury that he only deserved 20 years in prison because he could be reformed and rehabilitated. In her closing argument, one of Brian's defense attorneys said, quote, Where's the motive, y'all? They want you to believe he's the creepola of the universe. These were two people hooking up at a bar and something went horribly wrong, end quote. But the prosecution, on the other hand, told the jury that Bryant literally created a horror movie when he killed and mutilated Jackie, and they called him, quote-unquote, an evil, destructive figure. Prosecutors said it was a sinister act of violence, and they pointed out that Jackie had a brain injury from a blow to the head that could not have come from hitting her head inside the car during sex. They also pointed out how he used a long knife to cut out her heart in the dark of the morning. Prosecutor Lucas Allen said, quote, if the purpose is to dispose of a body, why are you cutting out the heart? End quote. After a week of testimony and closing arguments, the jury took less than three hours to deliberate and convict Bryant of capital murder and tampering with evidence. Bryant, who was 31 at the time, showed no emotion as the jury read the verdict. Afterward, Jackie's father, Rick Vandegriff, addressed the court and said, quote, Although it has been 19 months since we lost our precious daughter, not a minute, hour, or day goes by that we do not think of her, her kindness, her compassion, her enthusiasm and love of life. What would Jackie say if we could talk to her? She would say, remember me, remember my hopes and dreams for the future and my plans to get there, end quote. Bryant was ultimately sentenced to life in prison with an additional 20 years for evidence tampering. However, under Texas law, Bryant could be eligible for parole in as little as 30 years, which terrifies Caitlin to her core. She said, quote, I fear that when he gets out, he'll come and find me and do something to either me or someone that I love. That's my biggest fear, end quote. And the ripple effects of Bryant's horrific crime continue to weigh on Jackie's family, too. Jackie's father, Rick, told the Dallas Morning News in 2018 that their family no longer celebrates birthdays and holidays in their home. Rick said, quote, we just can't celebrate in the house and look at her chair, end quote. Despite their grief, they wanted to do something to honor Jackie and keep her memory and spirit alive. So they established the Jacqueline Ray Vandegrift Endowment at Texas Women's University, which funds internships for nutrition and food science majors at TWU, as well as provides the recipients of the endowment with a class ring. Caitlin and her mother, Karen, said they often think about Jackie and her family. And nearly two years after her murder, the two families were finally able to meet. Karen, Caitlin's mother, explained how Jackie's grandmother immediately embraced Caitlin and said, quote, I've been so worried about you these past two years, end quote. Caitlin said she often struggles with the fact that her life was spared and Jackie's was not, which is an incredibly tough pain to live with. Jim Axelrod, on 48 Hours, told Caitlin that it could have easily been her instead of Jackie. Caitlin responded to him with, quote, And some days I wish it was. It's just the guilt that eats me up sometimes. I would have easily taken her place if I had the chance. End quote. Oh, okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 6. And y'all, this one was a hard one to both write and cover, but I think it's because I'm so familiar with the area and where all of this took place that I can just picture it and it just kind of puts you right there in the moment. And I don't know, I just feel for both. I hate that there's two victims in this case and how Caitlin continues to feel this pain and guilt. And it's just such a sad story, y'all. 
But thank you for listening today. And y'all be sure to check out my social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Podcast on Instagram and Campus Crime Chronicles on Facebook. You can also reach me by email at campuscrimepodcast at gmail.com. And be sure to check out my TikTok for some additional campus crime stories, which as I promised you, there are some new stories up there. There's some new stuff that I posted on there. So go check those out. Let me know what you'll think. Okay, well, that's all for today, so bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by G.R.E. Gassaway. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.